Good morning, friends. I just love that they're going to get that recording, and I encourage you to continue praying for them as Nancy and Opal travel that way, and I hope that that helps inform you about the people whom we partner with on the other side of the world and helps you pray for them more effectively in the days and weeks and months to come. Keep praying for God's work in their midst. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning. So if you return with me to Acts chapter 12. Last week, at the end of our passage, um, in verse 29 and 30, there's this famine that is prophesied that would happen in Judea. And the disciples are in, at least part of the disciples are in Antioch. And it says in verse 29 of chapter 11, it says, So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. And they did this by sending to it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. We are sending our team in a similar way that the Church of Antioch sent Barnabas and Saul. Um, one of the things about their opportunity to serve the people who part with in that area is that it's a ministry of encouragement. You can imagine, even with just some of the things that were shared, how discouraging sharing the gospel could be in a region such as that. And so we pray for them to give biblical words that would encourage the believers there as they gather. As we enter into chapter 12, though, one of the things I want you to see just comes from the text. What we just did there is incredibly biblical. Um, a key feature of the early church was caring for those in need. And it's kind of this idea of when one part of your body hurts, the other parts of your body tend to hurt as well. Last year I had an infected tooth. Not fun, I don't recommend it. But when your tooth hurts, the rest of your body hurts. And when there's believers and brothers and sisters of Jesus on the other side of the world who face struggle, we're called to pray, we're called to support, we're called to encourage and, and be the body in that way. We are going to be studying Acts chapter 12 today. After, after uh, graduation Sunday in June, we're going to be looking at the rest of the book of Acts and studying that. Next week, as you've already heard, is Resurrection Sunday. We've got two opportunities for worship. We'd love to have you at both of those. Those are both unique opportunities. And um, after that, in the month of May, we're going to be studying the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer from Matthew chapter 6. So there's your heads up as to what is coming. This morning, we are also going to kind of be looking at prayer. One of the ways we're going to see prayer work in Acts chapter 12 comes down to this principle. Fervent prayer demonstrates trust in a sovereign God. All right? Fervent prayer demonstrates trust in a sovereign God. So I want to ask you to stand with me now that you are in Acts chapter 12, and let's read together from the scripture this morning. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly, fervently, to God for him by the church. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter bound, 
with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the, guard, of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. Then the chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around me, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and immediately the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door in the gateway, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the gateway. You're crazy, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and to the brothers, he said. Then he departed, and he went to a different place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been angry with the Tyronians and Sidonians. Together, they presented themselves before him. They won over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, and through him they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man. At once, the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and became infected with worms and died. Then God's message flourished and multiplied after they had completed their relief mission. Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who is called Mark. Let's pray. Our Father, we open your word because we want to hear from you. God, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon your truth. So that as we leave this place, we might go and we might share that truth and we might live that truth for the honor and the glory of your Son, Jesus, our Messiah. In whose name we pray and together we say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, Acts chapter 12. That's a thrilling story. This could be a really good movie if it really wanted to be. Um, couple of things, just as we start. Context, always important. Verse 1, you'll notice, at about that time, King Herod quickly attacks up. All right, we have to answer a couple of questions as we begin. What time and which Herod? All right, the, the time is closely tied to the last couple of verses of the previous chapter. It's at the time when the church at Antioch was sending people 
Barnabas and Paul, or Saul, down to the church in Judea and Jerusalem. It's about that time that King Herod cruelly attacks some belonging to the church. And this Herod even kills James, and he takes Peter into jail. He, he, he puts him in, in, in the jail, and he guards him with 16 men on a rotation. But first, let's talk about which Herod, all right? There are several Herods in your New Testament. Probably the most famous one is the one that, that we know about from Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus is born, there's a Herod who is ruling over Jerusalem. And that was Herod the Great. He is kind of, I guess in one sense, the patriarch of the Herods. But he has many people who come after him. So, so Herod the Great, and, and to help us do this, I actually have a, a family tree for us to look at, all right? Here's, here's family tree. They're all the rage these days. We've got Herod the Great up at, up at top, and he had several sons. He had Aristobulus, Archelaus, Antipas, Philip, and Philip II, okay? Philip I, we'll start with him. Um, he married Herodias. He's the one who killed John the Baptist, and he had no official office. That's Philip I. Um, he, you can find, if you want to, in Matthew chapter 14. Then there's Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee and Perea. Ironically, he was also husband of Herodias, yet at a different time, and we won't go into that story today. Um, then we come to Archelaus, which is a really fun name to say. Um, he reigned over Judea, but he was not a very good ruler, and so he was deposed and he was banished. You'll find him in Matthew chapter 2. We have Philip II. He ruled over the Decapolis and in other areas. He was the founder of Caesarea Philippi. If you've known that from your scripture, he, he's the founder of Caesarea Philippi, and you can find him in Luke chapter 3. All right, I went through those quickly because we want to come to the one in question. The one in question is not Aristobulus. It is Agrippa I. Aristobulus is the son of Herod the Great, which of course makes Agrippa I the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, Aristobulus was killed by his father. Uh, Herod the Great was not known for his uh, mild-mannered temper. If he felt that he was uh, threatened in one way, shape, or form, uh, he would do what needed to be done in his eyes to keep his throne secure. Uh, Pastor Tom reminded me of a quote from, from the ancient period. <laughs> it goes, better to be a pig in Herod's house than to be a son. And that kind of Aristobulus, I'm sure, would have felt that way in some respect. But we are talking about Herod Agrippa today. Herod Agrippa. Now, Herod Agrippa comes from a noble lineage, not just from Herod the Great, but through the matriarchal side of his family. It goes all the way to the Maccabean period, all right? The Maccabean period was an important period in, in the mid-160s before, uh, before Christ. And the Maccabean period is noted as a time when there was a revolt against the rulers over the Jews, and the revolt was led by a guy named Matthias, who was an aged priest. What was done is that the, the Greek rulers had desecrated the temple, and the Jewish people revolted, and that resulted in victory um, in, in many ways, and that is why Jewish people today celebrate the festival of Hanukkah, or you might know it in your Bible as the festival of dedication. When you see that, that's Hanukkah. Um, so this is the line that Agrippa comes from, and there's a reason for that in just a moment. Um, 
when he was young, I think it was about seven years old, if my memory is correct, Agrippa was sent to live in Rome because, well, his father was killed and his grandfather was a little unstable. And he was sent to Rome to be raised, to be schooled, and probably for his safety as well. Um, and he became friends with several of the future rulers of the Roman Empire. And when they ascended to power, eventually he was placed in charge of various quadrants and various sections of, of rulership within the nation of Israel. He sought to observe Jewish festivals such as Passover, and we see that in the passage. And notice with me verse 3. He says, when it says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, that is, killing James, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. Okay, Unleavened bread is the festival that actually begins next weekend. Passover and unleavened bread go together. Passover begins next weekend. So you see uh, some observance, or at least kind of kind observance, of Jewish festivals that Agrippa followed. He was a shrewd politician. One of the things that Agrippa understood is that in order to secure a peaceful area, at least as peaceful as it might get, and in order to establish his own well-being going forward, he needed to make two groups of people happy. He needed to make Rome happy, and he needed to make the Jewish leaders happy. If he didn't make one of those happy, there was not going, it wasn't going to be very good for him or for perhaps the people around him. And so we find in our narrative today, Peter is on death row, and he's awaiting the festival of Passover and unleavened bread to be completed. Because according to Jewish law, uh, they would not execute someone over this festival, and Agrippa did not want a revolt on his hands. And so he's got Peter locked away, um, very well guarded, and he's waiting till the end of this festival to bring him out to have a trial of sorts and to execute him because he saw how executing James had pleased the Jewish leaders and he wanted to do certain things to curry favor with them. All right, so here are just some photos to help you understand where we're at and what is going on. This is a model of first century Jerusalem that you can find if you go to the Holy Land. They, they've got this in Jerusalem. So this is a picture of what Jerusalem would have looked like at the time of Jesus. You'll notice... Um, the temple is the big thing, kind of in the top part of your screen. And if you go to the left part of your screen, you have Herod's palace over there. Um, Peter, one of the likely locations of Peter being held was a place called the Antonio Fortress. And that is closely tied to the temple. So next slide, please, Chad. There we go. There's temple courts, and if you look on the right side of the temple courts, you'll see this thing that has four pillars. That's called the Antonio Fortress. That's a place where they would often house people who are under arrest. Um, and it's, as I said, the Passover and the unleavened bread, and this was a significant time of gathering. There are three major feasts. There's more feasts than three, but there's three major feasts in which the scripture calls all men to go to Jerusalem for. So you have people from all over the land who are Jewish people gathering to celebrate Passover. And here's just kind of a picture of Passover a few years back. Next slide, please, Chad. And there's a ton of people crowded in. It's a busy, busy place this time of year. And that is why Herod had him in high security. He wants to make sure, number one, that he is safe for the time being, but he also doesn't want any sort of a revolt. And he places him, your text says, under a secure guard of four squads of four soldiers each. And likely what happened 
is there was a rotation that would happen, especially during the night, where you would always have four people guarding you. And you notice in the text, Peter is in prison, and he's got two people on sides of him, and then he's got people as sentries on the way in. And so this guard would be changed at nighttime for sure every three hours. So the chances of a guard falling asleep, not very likely. It's an important thing that they made sure this prisoner was secure. And it was important for the guards as well, because as you, as you note from our reading, at the end of this, uh, part of the narrative, Herod uh, interrogates the guards, and then he orders their execution. If you're a guard, and you let your prisoner go, that means you get the sentence that they would have gotten, all right? It's a very big deal to be a guard in the first century. Um, So Herod has him in high security, and verse 6 describes Peter being chained between two guards. There is no way out. Peter and the early church are in impossible position, but I want to show you, with all of this said, I want to show you how they respond. Look with me, please, in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. Fervent and earnest prayer was what these followers of Jesus were engaging in. The word for fervent here is the same word that is used in Luke 22, and it describes how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was to be betrayed. Luke 22 says this, says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's just a great posture of prayer, by the way. It's always about what God's will is and being aligned with that. But Look with me, verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's the same word used here as what is used to describe how the early church prays for Peter, right? With great earnestness at the hour of greatest need. They could have tried to do a lot of things. They could have tried to go appeal. They could have who knows? You know, they're creative people. But what did they do? They prayed. They, they realized that at the worst moment in someone's potential life, the best posture to have is the posture of dependence upon God. The best posture to have is to say, God, I trust you, even though I don't understand this, and even though my friend is in jail, and even though he's probably going to die tomorrow. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed. And I want to ask you a question. When your back is up against the wall, when you face difficulty in some area of your life, what do you do? What do you do? I know for me, one of my defaults is I like to try and see how I can fix the problem. What, what's a way that I can figure something out in order to make this different? What, and there's nothing wrong with that. But... If our first, first, first thing is not prayer, we rob ourselves of going to the one who is all-knowing and who is all-good and in whose hands he holds the entire universe. When your back is up against the wall, what do you do? 
Jesus' posture is one of being wholly submitted to the will of his Father. And the reason that he is wholly submitted to the will of his Father is because he trusts God, his Father. He trusts God, his Father. One of the things that we'll look at in coming weeks when we study the disciples' prayers, it begins with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The idea that we can call God Father, the word there in the, in the original language is the, is the idea of Abba, Papa. You go to God out of respect, but you go to God because you are a son and you are a daughter, and you can boldly go into his presence, and you can pray to him. And not only can you pray to him, God wants to hear you. One of the distinctive features of New Testament prayer in the early church. I found this this week. I just love this quote. It says, the distinctive feature of early Christian prayer is the certainty of being heard. The certainty of being heard. I won't ask you to raise hands, but how many of you have ever prayed and wondered, does God really hear me? I I suspect maybe some of you in this room have experienced that or have felt that way. The early church they had a certainty that when they prayed, God would hear them. And that's such an encouragement to me. And they knew this because God is a father who loves and he cares for his children. And when we believe that God hears us, we learn to trust his heart and his goodness. Now, you could ask a lot, we could ask a lot of questions about this text, like why does God spare Peter and not James? All right, why does God spare Peter and not James? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. But when the church was faced with the grief of losing a brother and the possible future grief of losing another brother, they're not mad at God. They go to God and they pray and they pray and they pray. Prayer in the New Testament church recognizes that God hears, that God cares about you, and that God is sovereign over all things. And prayer in the New Testament church is both a personal and a corporate initiative, all right? When you go home today, one of my prayers for you is that God would grow your prayer life. One of my prayers for us as a community is that God would grow our prayer lives because we encourage one another when we pray for one another. One of my favorite times of Sunday morning is the meeting that we have before um, before the service starts with our worship team. We, we just talk through things and make sure we're all on the same page. My favorite part of that, though, is hearing my friends pray because their prayers encourage me to follow the Lord and to trust the Lord. There's a personal and a corporate practice of prayer. How would you describe prayer in your life today? How would you describe prayer in your life today? Do you believe that God hears you? Because he does. He does. Do you regularly pray for yourself and what is going on in your life? I hope you do. Do you seek to pray for other people? Friends, one of the greatest ministries that we can have is brothers and sisters in the Lord is to pray for one another. And we can do that without the other person knowing. We can also go up to someone we can say, hey, how can I be praying for you this week? We can hear something that someone's going through, and we could say, hey, could we just stop right now, and could I just pray for you right now? Could I encourage you? Now, as the church made earnest prayer for Peter, 
<laughs> I love this. He is sleeping between two guards. I don't think I could have slept. I sleep pretty soundly, but I don't sleep soundly enough to be sleeping two guards on death row. And in the midst of Peter sleeping and the church praying, God sends an angel or messenger. And this angel or messenger powerfully rescues Peter from the hands of Agrippa. And he does this through a dramatic way. There's, there's lots of active verbs here. It's a quick, get up, verse 7. Then the chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, Put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you, and follow me. And Peter, who had had visions and stuff like that before, like when he was, um, he was in Joppa and he had that vision to go up to, to Cornelius, he'd had visions before. He thinks, this must be a dream. This must be a vision. And so they go out, and they pass the first and the second guard posts, and they come to an iron gate. And by the way, the iron gate opens by itself, and then he's out in the streets. And then Peter comes to himself, and he's like, whoa, what really just happened here is really something that just happened here. Just a couple photos to help you see where this takes place. Um, this is an iron door. This is in the, at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, okay? It's a big, heavy thing. It's not something that would open by itself. Um, the next picture... It's a picture of a gate, and that gate kind of down in the center there. This is of that model that I told you about, and this is one of the sides of the Antonio Fortress. So if Peter is being held in here, he possibly would have come out of this gate. This gate, that small thing, which wouldn't have been so small because uh, that's a model, uh, this gate opens by itself, and he finds himself out on the streets of Jerusalem. Now, here's a photo taken in the mid-1930s of the streets of Jerusalem. And as he finds himself out there, he goes to a place. And he goes to um, the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And that is the place where people were assembled and they were praying. And he knocks at the door and a servant named Rhoda comes. She recognizes Peter's voice. And I love this. She's so excited. She goes and she tells everyone, hey, Peter is here. And they say, you're absolutely crazy. But all the meanwhile, Peter, who has just been rescued and, and snatched out of jail, is knocking on the door, probably thinking, won't you let me in? I'm kind of exposed here. And, and so Peter's there and he's knocking and the early church is like, it must be his angel. Peter keeps knocking, and then they go out into the door, and the text says that they were astounded, which means in some shape or form, they didn't expect God to work like this. They didn't know how God would work, but they didn't expect that he would be broken out of jail, much less a very secure facility such as this. And so um, he tells them, be quiet. He explains how God had brought him out of the prison, and then he says this thing. He says, report to James and the brothers— and then he goes to a different place, all right? Report to James and the brother. So Peter, Peter's leaving at night. He goes through all these things. He tells how God has delivered him, and then he recognizes James. And this isn't James, the one who was just executed. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And he is an, a leader within the early church, and we'll see him more in Acts chapter 15. But one of the things, just to kind of foretaste that, Peter is in some senses foreshadowing that there is different leadership within the church, that someone else has been raised up and is leading this Jerusalem church, perhaps even the Judean church, as, as someone to help guide them and to help um, encourage the, the believers there. So that's the first part of our story. The second part of our story is equally thrilling, but not as long. So we have the same Herod, crazy Herod, Herod who... Um, who came into power, Herod who knows how to keep everyone happy, this Herod Antipas. And 
it transitions in verse 20, and he had been angry with the Tyronians and the Sidonians, okay? And so because he was angry with them, not to mention did he, not to mention he also controlled how much food they had. They come to his servant, whose name is Blastus, and he, this man was in charge of the king's bedroom, which simply means that he was in charge of a lot of the personal affairs of King Agrippa, okay? He, he was trusted, and he was, um, it, when he said something, uh, Agrippa might listen to him. So they go to Blastus, and they say, would you go before us? Would you kind of help being be an intermediary for him. So they won over him, and they asked for peace because the country was supplied with food. Verse 21, so on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes, seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. Now you know what happens here. What, it, what is interesting is that um, this event is also found in the writings of a man by the name of Josephus. Josephus was a historian, a Jewish historian at the time of Jesus, and he writes a lot of things, and this story is found in one of his books. Um, to help set the context, we've moved from Jerusalem. Um, Antipas has gone up to Caesarea Maritima, and here is what this looks like. This is a majestic palace on the shores of the Mediterranean, okay? There's the palace. Right behind the palace, you'll see this Colosseum-type area. That's a, that's a theater. And then to the left of the palace that juts out is a place called the Hippodrome. We've got more close-up photos for you. Next slide, please, Chad. This is an aerial view from the southwest, okay? So you can see lower palace, upper palace, Hippodrome, and theater. This was built by Herod the Great's son, Philip II, and this was a large palace that included even a swimming pool. There's a freshwater swimming pool. There's a theater, the Hippodrome. And what I want you to understand by seeing this is this was a glorious place. This was incredibly beautiful. This showed opulence. It showed power. It showed wealth. And it demonstrated a little bit of the rule of Herod. Um, so we, I told you all about what's happening there, Hippodrome. Here's a, here's a photo of the Hippodrome. Here's the next one. And this seats about 15,000 people. It may not look like that here, but it does. And this is the most likely location for what is about to take place in the story with uh, Agrippa's speech and his resulting death. Uh, you'll notice in the center of your screen there, there is a raised platform. And there's a close-up of it right here. There you go. So Pharaoh, Herod would have been standing on this likely when he presents his, his little talk and his speech to the people. And, um, and they say to him after he had delivered the address, he said, it's the voice of a God, not of a man. So here is the kind of more filled out story because it's very short in the text. Um, here's the filled out story from Josephus. We have this up here for you. It says, now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower, and there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. Upon his being informed that there was a certain festival dedicated to make vows for his safety. At which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity throughout his province. In other words, all the important people are there. They're gathered and they're there to celebrate, in some sense, Caesar, but Agrippa's going to want a little bit of this um, notoriety as well. 
On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, very flashy, very pretty, I guess, and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and it was so resplendent as to spread a horror over all those who looked intently on him. All right? Blinding. It's just really blinding. Sun hits silver, and you can't see. And presently his flatterers cried out from one place to another, and from another to another, though not for his is good that he was a god. Now, you might ask, why is this here? <laughs> All right, that's to help maybe give you a picture as, in more words, describing from a different source, um, a fairly reliable source for the ancient period. Um, but why is this here? Many emperors throughout this time and since have claimed to have a godlike status. Caesar would do this, other emperors would do this, and at a basic fundamental level, this is wrong. This is, this is so incredibly wrong, because as, as the scriptures teach, there is one God. There's one God. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. Echad is the word there in the Hebrew. It means one. It means alone. It has this idea of don't go worship many gods because there is only one. Now here's a powerful ruler who refused to give glory to God and God had something to say to him about that. All right? He, he was up there dressed in silver. Sun hits him. He receives this. It's not that they just say this about him, is that he doesn't say, I am not God, I am not God, but he allows that to be said, and he allows himself to receive that attention. And notice what the text says. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he became infected with worms and died. All right? Here we have the first part of chapter 12. Agrippa is coming after the church. There's power, there's might. He holds the keys to whether or not um, Peter was going to live, or so he thought. Here's a powerful man who thought he was really powerful. He even thought he was a god. And yet, in the first portion of our text today, God humbled him and he broke Peter out of prison. And in the second portion of our text today, we're in a different area. He receives all this commendation, and God says, you are not God. And here's this powerful ruler, reduced to someone who was infected with worms and who died. Friends, no ruler, authority, persecution, anything will stop the message of God. There's only one God who is above all and who is all-powerful. And one of the things that hit me as I was studying this week is uh, Jesus says, I will build my church. Agrippa could not stop the building of the church. He couldn't even keep Peter in prison. God will build his church. Notice what it says in verse 24. Then God's message flourished and multiplied. God's message flourished and multiplied. So, one of the things I like to do in our Sunday school class uh, when we reach certain passages, uh, really any passage, you could say, what does this passage tell me about God? What do I learn about God from the text here? 
He will build his church. God is sovereign over all things, including politicians, rulers, and powers of this world. God does not share his glory. He does not share his glory, and yet all good things come from God's hand. When his children come to him in prayer, God hears them because he cares and because he loves them with an everlasting love. Another great question to ask when you reach a Bible passage is, how does this passage show me how to live? How is this instructive for me today? One of the truths, and this is an exhaustive list, but we may not always understand God's ways, but we can trust his heart, and we can confidently believe that he hears us when we pray. Every moment in our life, both the good moments, but especially the darkest moments, are opportunities to fervently pray to God. I love the psalmist. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, God is with you. You do not need to fear today. It's really easy for life to become self-centered. It's really easy for me to think life is all about me. But it's important to ask the question, God, how do you want me to glorify you in my life today? God, how do you want to live through me so that Christ receives all glory and honor? It's also fitting to say, God, how can I be praying for the body of Christ? You know some ways today how to do that. But how can I constantly be praying for people that they might come to acknowledge and, and follow Jesus with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength, or that I can go to a believer and a brother or sister in Christ and I can say, hey, let me encourage you. Keep going, keep going, keep going. When faced with fear or concern, whether it be from politics or whether it be from illness or other forces of this world, friends, our first reaction should be to pray. And as we pray, we trust God with our lives as we then go out and we allow the message of the Messiah to flow through us. Because fervent prayer shows trust in our sovereign God. This week is Holy Week. I, I hope that you take moments this week to reflect upon the cross, to reflect upon what Christ has done for you. I, I want to read, I need this one. I want to read from Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is one of the praise psalms. And this is one of the psalms that Jesus would have sung as he leaves the upper room and as he gets ready to go to the cross. Psalm 115. And I just want you to hear this because it talks all about the glory of God. It says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses but do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel. And they have feet but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
And I love this. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You, you, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Friends, he is your help and your shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we, we, we will bless the Lord both now and forevermore. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Could we pray together? God, we bless you and we thank you, God. Trust alone is in you. Hope alone is in you. God's strength alone is in you. And I pray for my friends this morning that they would trust in the Lord, that they would seek your face, and that as they seek your face, as we seek your face together, God, entering this holy week, that we would be reminded the incredible sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. God, you are our help and our shield. We bless you today. King of heaven and earth. And Lord, even as we finish today, I know that there are some heavy hearts and there are some heavy situations in this room. And God, we fervently pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our sufficient needs for today. God, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because God, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We bless you, Lord God. We celebrate you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and would you sing with us as we close?